I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As his presidency began this time last year, Joe Biden proclaimed his doctrine to the world with a promise attached. America is back. In the 12 months that have followed, however, that pledge has come under intense scrutiny over the scramble to leave Afghanistan, erratic relations with Western allies, and a standstill in trade negotiations with China. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in this first week of a new year on the show, we're asking... How will American power be tested in 2022? Poised along Ukraine's eastern border are tens of thousands of Russian soldiers, and Vladimir Putin shows no sign of stepping back from a threat to invade. Unless NATO agrees to a range of Kremlin ultimatums. It's not only the spectre of conflict in Eastern Europe that will keep Joe Biden on his foreign policy toes in the coming 12 months. An aggressive China is banging war drums in the Taiwan Strait. Autocratic leaders in the Middle East are growing bolder. And in Africa, Ethiopia, once heralded for its advances, is in the grip of civil war. There's a world of problems out there to explore with my guest today, the foreign policy expert Robert Kaplan, who's advised presidents, the Pentagon and the US armed forces. A crisis in one part of the world can dramatically affect a crisis in another part of the world as never before. This is a vastly unstable world. For three decades, Roberts reported on events shaping the world, from the Balkans to Afghanistan and the Middle East. And he's the best-selling author of 19 books. He also holds a chair at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Pennsylvania. Robert Kaplan, welcome to The Economist Asks. It's a great pleasure to be here. Now, much of your work has centred around how geography informs foreign policy. In fact, you believe geography is so important that I think you once said half of everything is geography and the other half is Shakespeare. Well, that covers a multitude of sins. But how does geography influence the fate of particular countries? If we look at the world in 2022, for instance. Well, let's take Taiwan, for example. Taiwan is roughly 100 miles off the coast of mainland China. 
If the Taiwan Straits were only the width of the English Channel, being about 20 miles off the coast of China, China would have invaded and conquered and incorporated Taiwan decades ago. But that extra 80 miles presents a whole gamut of military and logistical challenges to make it an extremely difficult proposition for China to very easily, quickly, militarily incorporate Taiwan. The problem is that geography is so, it's so obvious that it's the obvious that tends to get overlooked. And in an article you wrote for us at The Economist not long ago, you argued that America's geography gives it an edge over its great power rivals. So put it in that context for us. Because America is protected by two wide oceans and has only the Canadian Arctic to the north. And it's only difficult border and it's only barely difficult is with Mexico to the south. The United States has more natural gas and shale to make it energy self-sufficient. It enforces a kind of foreign policy decadence on the United States. What I mean is that the United States can fail big in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Vietnam. And yet the United States is still there as the world's preeminent power. And because the elites pay no price for mistakes, that's what I mean by decadence. If Israel or Taiwan made those kinds of mistakes like the U.S. made in Vietnam or Iraq, Israel or Taiwan would not be there anymore. That sounds like a pretty hefty critique of the U.S., in the sense of you, you almost seem to be suggesting that it invites carelessness. Yes, yes. You know, with those kinds of advantages, foreign policy only has to operate at, say, 65 percent quality in order for the United States to survive, whereas a small beleaguered country, Singapore, for example, has to operate at like 90, 95 percent efficiency in foreign policy. Let's look to one of the big challenges facing the US and indeed geopolitics worldwide at the moment. And it is, of course, the Ukraine crisis. What is likely to happen there? And also, if you could put it into the context of your geographical explanation, I see a kind of statement of the obvious that <laughs> Ukraine is a big landmass and uh, is resource wealthy and it's right next to Russia. Beyond that being a, a kind of accident of history and sometimes as a matter of, of some suffering to Ukraine, what should I learn from it? Alas, what geography teaches about Ukraine is that it is enveloped on two or three sides with no natural borders with Russia. And it's part of historic Russia going back to the ninth century. It's also part of Russian empires, the Romanov Empire. And for that reason, as cruel as it sounds, Russia will always care more about Ukraine than Western Europe or the United States will. And caring more about it, it will be willing to expend more resources and take greater risks to keep Ukraine from ever being a member of NATO or a member of the EU. So I would say that the best outcome for Ukraine, given its geography, and its history is a sort of successful Finlandization, whereby, remember, um, Finland during the Cold War was free, it was democratic, economically vibrant, but its foreign policy had borders around it written by the Kremlin. 
essentially. It couldn't join NATO. And for Russia, it was a cheap form of imperialism. They got what they wanted in a security sense, and it didn't cost them much, basically. The best case scenario destiny for Ukraine is that it emerges as a kind of Finland. But that's the best case analysis, which in a sense relies on a stable relationship between Moscow and, and Washington, That's the way that was hashed out with the, with the Finland question. I, I'm perhaps a bit more doubtful uh, than you that, that that is reachable. I mean, you seem to be suggesting that there's a lot of saber rattling at the moment on both sides and that there's a kind of safe harbour destination for Ukraine. But that isn't really what's happening, is it? I mean, the Kremlin has turned up the heat on this question quite decisively. It could have just let Ukraine sort of be a frozen conflict. A lot of us maybe thought that was what was going to happen after the last incursion. And at the same time, President Biden has said that the US and its allies will respond decisively to any invasion. He isn't using the old Donald Trump playbook that it's far away and it's not really America's business. So, so I, I'm wondering if things aren't a bit sharper than you suggest. You're absolutely correct. When I meant a Finlandization, I meant that as a best case scenario for Ukraine. But best case scenarios often don't happen. We get middle case scenarios or worst case scenarios. And it certainly looks now that Vladimir Putin is taking those risks, putting in those resources into a place that's part of the European Russian empire and saying, I'm willing to take more risks and put in more resources than the West is. And what that could lead to is a number of things. Take your pick. Keep in mind what Putin has been doing in Georgia, what he's been doing in Belarus. It's all part of a pattern. He's seeking to reestablish the Soviet empire in an informal way, and even including the former Warsaw Pact countries of Central and Eastern Europe. In other words, a soft zone of Russian imperial influence to basically negate the strategic effects of the way that the Cold War ended. What he might do is take out another slice of eastern Ukraine and say, I dare you, what will you do? NATO may move some forces into central eastern Europe, but how much can they help Ukraine? It's easy to write in the newspapers that they can send the Ukrainian military these kinds of weapons and those kinds of weapons. But those weapons need to get there. The Ukrainian military needs to be trained on them, which is a matter of weeks, not days. There's a lot of complications with it. So I would say now Putin has the upper hand. I'm going to put you on the spot and say, what's your prognosis for the coming couple of weeks? More jaw-jaw or a rapid path to war-war? I would say more jaw-jaw, but with Russia building up its forces even greater than they are to affect a kind of fait accompli, whereby the West informally gives up any hope of incorporating uh, Ukraine into NATO, into the EU. The best that Ukraine can hope for is like partnership status or junior status or some ambiguous in-between that doesn't really matter that much and that the Russians can live with. 
When we look east, and I want to pivot towards us talking about China in more depth, but perhaps on our world tour, we could go via Moscow towards Beijing. And Russia has strengthened its ties with China, notably over the past few years after a pretty testy relationship. They're now holding joint military exercises. They're talking about deepening of the relationship, obviously the way that they handle the opposition and also in many ways their recent pasts. What impact would this de facto alliance have on America? And do you believe it could actually become something more practical, the defense alliance, for instance? I think it will have a great impact because it essentially freezes the United States, strategically speaking, out of Eurasia. There's been a lot of loose talk at the beginning of the Biden administration that Biden should try to pry Russia away from China and concentrate on China and give a pass to Russia, so to speak. That was nonsensical talk. Because when Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon pried China away from the Soviet Union, China and the Soviet Union were almost on the brink of war in the Russian Far East and in Siberia, with almost a million troops fully armed and facing each other. China needed a respite. It needed an improved relationship with the United States. But Russia does not need that anymore from us. There's nothing we can give Russia or Putin that would, you know, that would satisfy him to pull away from a closer relationship with China. I've got an idea. Hang on a minute. I'm not sure I do agree with this at all. So I'm just going to say so. I think that the weakness of Russia in the Russia-China tie-up is economic. And I think this is not maybe something that is going to happen under Putin, but a lot of pressure on Putin, not least from this oligarch class, is around the Russian economy, if you follow my line of logic on that. So really a Russia that was able to do better trade deals with the West, where at least we'd come down from this level of kind of proto-conflict, would, I would suggest, be a possible target for a better form of of dialogue. What's wrong with my idea? And what's wrong with it is that Putin can only go so far. He has not been challenging China in Central Asia. He seems to have been comfortable with Chinese economic domination of the former Soviet space in Central Asia. He doesn't like being a second fiddle or a little brother to China, but the fact that he doesn't like it doesn't mean he, he can't live with it. If it means putting up a form of a solid block against the West, because he knows that the West wishes him no good. It wishes he were gone in some way or another, whereas China doesn't think that way. It would take extraordinarily creative diplomacy integrated with economic policy to pry Putin away a little bit from China. And I don't, I don't see that happening at the moment. You've described the US-China rivalry as a second Cold War, but that in this case, in your words, the war of ideas is all on one side. America has ideological ambitions. It fights in the name of democracy and human rights. It has tried, not always successfully, to project its massive global force and prominence in support of that. And that China's really not very interested in joining that debate. So these seem to be completely asymmetric motivations, and yet we still talk about a rivalry. What's the likely direction of what follows? Yes, I call the US-China struggle a cold war in the lower case sense of the word small c, small w. It's not like the Cold War. But what it is, is the United States is bent 
on exporting, if not democracy in the legalistic sense, at least civil society, fighting corruption, a lot of the building blocks that do make up democracy. Whereas China has shown a proclivity to get along with any kind of regime. It will work with anyone, provided that anyone has natural resources or is in a geographical position conducive to China's desires. You know, it works with the Iranians, it works works with the Egyptians. Um, it works with some U.S. allies. It's really building up its influence in Central and South America. So China is ambivalent about foreign countries' political systems. It would prefer them not to meet democracy, but that won't stop China from doing hefty trade with Germany, for instance. The United States, even after the debacle of Afghanistan and Iraq, is still a missionary power. It still seeks to export, if not a system, a list of values around the world. And you've written that we should be concerned about China's rise, but not hysterical. But is that a little bit of a pipe dream, given that China is is beginning to act more aggressively against the interests of the West? Where your question leads to most pointedly is the situation in Taiwan. Taiwan is like the West Berlin of the Cold War. And if it ever became realizable that the U.S. could not or would not protect Taiwan, then you would start to see countries in Asia from Japan in the north to even Australia in the south and certainly Singapore make side deals with China. Start to realize that the U.S. may be a great power, but it is still a half a world away. That the U.S. is only in Asia because it wants to be, whereas China is the very organizing principle of Asia in an economic, demographic and geographical sense. At the end of 2021, we reported a lot about China ratcheting up its military pressure on Taiwan. And it's interesting that that's the example you've chosen in a way to crystallise your case of what you think is really at the crux of this new superpower conflict. These tensions have not abated. As far as we can see, they're as serious as ever. Does that lead you to think that the US would seriously consider armed conflict, even outright war with China over Taiwan? I think it does consider it. In fact, the Pentagon sees China as, quote unquote, the pacing power. We have to keep up with Chinese innovation in the military. Warfare now is about battle networks. It's cyber, it's digital. And China is making great strides. The Pentagon considers China its number one threat, more so than Russia. So I think in the Pentagon's mind, it's certainly assuming that at some point the United States may have to militarily defend Taiwan. And that's interesting because the whole policy of so-called strategic ambiguity over the defense of Taiwan has been defining, hasn't it? It it looked very clever. It, It was supposed to act as a check on both Chinese ambitions and at the same time hold back pro independence Taiwanese politicians. Also, the assumption was that neither side would take the risk. But does strategic ambiguity still work in 2022, where we've seen a lot of examples, and perhaps uh, Putin on Ukraine is one of them, where people don't seem to be held back by a sort of what-if thinking. They just go for it and see what happens. Absolutely. Strategic ambiguity was designed for the early 1970s. It got China and the United States to agree to disagree 
on a major issue so that they could combine forces informally against the Soviet Union. But that was 50 years ago. And no foreign policy solution or very few is designed to last half a century. And what's happened in the meantime is not that Taiwan has changed so much, but that China and the United States have changed so much. China has become more militaristic and Xi Jinping has put himself on the line in terms of wanting to reintegrate Taiwan. As far as the United States is concerned, as we all know, the center is disappearing in American politics and you have the rise of the extreme left and the extreme right. So that the issue of Taiwan becomes more ideological than it was ever meant to be. So uh, we're really at a testing phase on whether the Chinese-American conception of agreeing to disagree on Taiwan made 50 years ago can still hold. I think it was a great achievement by the very fact that it's lasted this long. You bring me to an interesting thought, really, when we look ahead to the potential flashpoints and their dangers in 2022 in the world and America's response, which also, in essence, means leading NATO and leading the West's response. How much do you think that internal challenges in the American system are now tying the hands of presidents? And you've worked with a number of presidents. You've been very close to the defence and foreign policy establishment. Your suggestion, if I understood it correctly, is that polarization in America represents as big a challenge as external adversaries or alignments. Yes, in fact, it does. Remember what foreign policy is. Foreign policy is the foreign extension of a domestic situation. If the domestic situation is fraught, if it becomes more extreme, that's going to affect foreign policy in a negative sense because both major parties see foreign policy in terms of their own ideology. If we have an election in 2024 between two extremes, say Biden doesn't run again and you have a real left Democratic candidate and a real right Republican candidate, you're not going to get the kind of middle of the road, centrist, moderate solutions that we associate with not just Nixon and Kissinger, but with James Baker, George H.W. Bush, George Schultz. Those men were operating in, in a domestic context of moderates winning elections elections, whether it's Democratic or Republican. Well, let's not rule out that there still could be another moderate in the White House. But that, in a sense, is where I would want to put a bit of a squeeze on your argument there, because it's President Biden, after all, the ultimate uh, centrist or soggy moderate, depending on, on your view, who asserted that America was back. But it has sort of turned out that whether it's in dealings with medium-sized powers, Turkey's Pakistan, the Belarus question, it's hard to see this assertive centrist leadership and to turn to Afghanistan where you could see we've seen the opposite. We've seen a cut and run. That's certainly true. The one exception to the line of your argument, Anne, was with the Australian nuclear submarine deal. It was kept secret. It was brilliantly executed. I haven't seen that much coordination or that much talent, in fact, in other parts of the world. Keep something in mind, though. Schultz, Kissinger, Baker, all of them operated in a moderate ideological climate. They had one thing in their advantage that we don't have anymore, which is the United States simply doesn't have the influence it used to have. 
for a whole host of economic reasons. You know, we're seeing the rise of post-colonial thinking, whether it's Ethiopia or it's South Africa, simply do not have to follow the lead of either the Kremlin on one hand or Washington on the other hand. And you have all these middle-level powers like Turkey and Iran, so that Turkey could send the Ethiopian government drones to flip the advantage in the war so that Turkey and the UAE get the diplomatic advantage in Ethiopia, whereas the United States gets none. You know, the power of, of that class of countries like the UAE, Turkey, Iran did not exist during the Cold War. We're speaking one year on since that terrible day when supporters of Donald Trump stormed the US Capitol. And Thinking back to that, my first response on seeing it was this feeling, and I, I've seen this before, but I've seen it in, in countries emerging from war, trauma, conflict, standoff in, in uh, Moscow between the presidency and, and the parliament in the 1990s. And I really, it was so disturbing, really, to pinch oneself and say, this is happening in the capital of the world's democracies in Washington. Did it change anything about the way that you see your own country and what follows from that? in the rest of the world? It didn't change my perception because I have been terrified by this rise of the extremes, which is tied to digitalization, the cyber world. I mean, it's impossible to imagine Donald Trump outside of the digital video age, essentially. Um, the presidents and secretaries of state I was talking about earlier operated in the print and typewriter era which encouraged moderation and complex thinking. The digital cyber age, you know, encourages rage, simplicity, all of that. Like Twitter is an organ for rage, essentially, and passion. And passion is the enemy of analysis and critical thinking. So I had been seeing and writing about this coming for some time. What, what the January 6th events did, however, was to provide a vivid visual element to it, almost an iconic element to it. Are there any conversations from all that time that you've spent in the rooms where it happened in terms of defence and foreign policy thinking, whether it's at home with uh, presidents and secretaries of state and defence that you've advised or indeed conversations with others abroad who have made and remade the fate of the world since the wall fell in 1989 in Berlin? Yes, I had a conversation with Henry Kissinger, one of many. And one of the things he said to me, he was really paraphrasing from his first book written when he was 26. And he said, foreign policy is a matter of balancing what is just with what is possible. And what is just depends on the values of your domestic environment. If it's America, freedom, human rights, democracy, but what is possible has to take into account the, the values of the other environment, whether it's Russia, China, Ethiopia, wherever you may have to be dealing with at the moment. And that leads to compromise, very difficult compromises, which do not satisfy everybody or even anybody. But that is the fate of statesmanship, to try to combine those two opposites, what is just with what is possible. Robert Kaplan, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you, Anne. And we'd love to know what you think, what and where poses the biggest challenge to President Biden's foreign policy hopes and fears. 
And if you had the presidency, which hotspots on the globe would command your attention in 2022? Do write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. As all eyes turn to Ukraine, The Economist takes a look at the demands Vladimir Putin is making on America and NATO to uncover exactly what he's up to. You'll find that article on our website. And the best way to truly stay up to date with what's happening all around the world is, of course, to become an Economist subscriber. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers are Alicia Burrell and Julia Johnson, and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.